0: our moderator tonight is David McCloskey. David is the author of Damascus Station, former CIA analyst and former consultant at McKinsey and Company. He's worked in CIA field stations across the Middle East uh, throughout the Arab Spring and conducted a rotation in the counterterrorism center focused on the jihad in Syria and Iraq. During his time at McKenzie, David advised national security, aerospace, and transportation clients on a range of strategic and operational initiatives. We're very happy to welcome David back to our stage. As a moderator tonight, well, we've had him as a speaker on his book previously. So David, please uh, come on up and join me in welcoming him.
1: State, served as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Republic of Armenia, and the Kyrgyz Republic. She also held a variety of postings and locations as widespread as Moscow, London, Ottawa, and Mogadishu, Somalia. Ambassador Ivanovich retired from the Department of State in 2020 and is now a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a non-resident fellow at Georgetown University. Ambassador Ivanovich is a highly decorated member of the Foreign Service who has been awarded the Presidential Distinguished Service Award, the Secretary's Diplomacy for Freedom Award, the Trainer Award for Excellence in Conduct of Diplomacy, and the Penn Benson Courage Award, amongst many others. Ambassador Ivanovich spent most of her career at state, focused on Russia and the republics of the former Soviet Union, and she brings with that experience a unique insight into the war now playing out between Russia and Ukraine the latest and most devastating phase of which began nearly one year ago, and a topic that we'll doubtless discuss a bunch more later this evening. She's here today to talk to us about her book, Lessons from the Edge, many of which uh, many of you have. Uh, it's a, a propulsive story, at once a moving memoir, a masterclass in the true nature of diplomacy, a history charting the arc of the former Soviet empire from its collapse to the present, and most of all, a very powerful lesson in what it means to dedicate a life to family and to public service. The book is moving, it's thrilling, and there are, as the title says, lessons here, I think, for all of us. It's also full of wonderfully illuminating personal details and stories of this sort one collects during three decades as a diplomat. We have, in one instance, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham wearing the ambassador's LOB in winter boots during a cold visit to the front in Ukraine. Uh, and there even is, in a sort of, as I was typing this out, a remarkable sentence that even I, as a novelist, could not dream of making up. The existence, or the mention of the existence of a photo featuring the ambassador's then septuagenarian mother and kid rock on the sidelines of a USO concert in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> and there is the ambassador's remarkably well-executed disinformation campaign, resulting in the fact that most residents of former Soviet republics believe that she holds a black belt in judo, uh, a claim that backstage even tonight she would neither confirm nor deny uh, So she maybe was working for the wrong, the wrong agency all those years. All of these, I should hint, would make exceptional fodder uh, for the Q&A session after our talk. Um, all that to say, we're in for a real treat this evening. And please join me in welcoming to Dallas and the stage, Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. So the, the book is Lessons from the Edge, and it's a memoir. And, and I mean this as a very terrific compliment um, uh, to your experience in writing it. Really does it parts, kind of read like read like a thriller. Um, it's, it's a very compulsive and wonderful book. So thank you for writing it. Um, can you kind of set the book up for us and just tell us what it's about and kind of why you wrote it and how you came to write it?
2: Yeah. So um, so thank you for that great introduction. I think That was the best introduction. <laughs> Years since the book has come out, I can tell you're a writer as well. Um, So I never thought I was going to write a book, but after my public testimony in November of 2019, I got thousands of letters from all over America um, saying, you know, thank you for your service. We didn't didn't know what diplomats did. Um, Tell us more. You should write a book. And so as I was thinking about my future and not sure about my prospects, I thought, well, (laughs) maybe I'll write a book. And so, in 2020, as you know, COVID threatened all of us, I started to write a book. And I wanted it to answer that question of what do diplomats do? And kind of the corollary, which is why is it important? And, uh, because I, I, I don't think we make the case um, to the American public uh, that diplomats um, protect and defend our freedom, our prosperity, our security every day. And um, we need diplomats on the front line just as we need folks um, in the intelligence agencies, just as we need um, our, our soldiers, our marines, our sailors, and our airmen. And um, you know, all, of, all of those agencies working together keep us you know, uh, going forward in, in, in the right direction. But I think diplomacy, um, at least today, is not, not necessarily well understood in all parts of America. So through my stories, through you know, my, my experiences, I wanted to share with the American people what, what a life in diplomacy might, might be all about. Maybe let's pick up on
1: that point. Because mm-hmm. I, I do think that one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book was that it does feel like you really get immersed into the life of a diplomat. And you see that through the trajectory of your career in life, starting at the very beginning, doing a lot of the grunt work that you're going to do as a very (laughs) young diplomat all the way up to being an ambassador in a a very large, very important country. So maybe could you talk to us a little bit about what that really, what does it mean diplomat? What do diplomats actually do? And how should we kind of think about that work that happens overseas?
2: So how much time do you have? Um, Because um, diplomats do a lot of different things. um, And and they do different things in different parts of the world. But um, just very briefly, um, perhaps the most important thing uh, that we do is we take care of American citizens overseas. And that might be as routine as issuing a birth or death certificate. providing somebody with a replacement passport if they've lost it or it was stolen. Um, But there can also be very dramatic instances as well, you know, people who have been kidnapped, people who are wrongfully detained, Um, and, you know, it's the American Embassy. It's the consular officer at the Embassy who goes, you know, every week, sometimes every month, depending on how far away that uh, prisoner is, and visits that person, stays in touch with the family, and advocates on their behalf. And obviously we um, I mean everybody here knows the case of Brittany Greiner, um, when it's um, when there's a very high political profile then of course um, you know the ambassador will get involved uh, as well as um, you know, many high level people in Washington as well um, so that's one thing that we do and it kind of depends on what's going on in the country that you're assigned to and, um, and you know what, what American citizens are doing there um, we also follow uh, the economy of the Crucially important, um, you know, just in terms of kind of the data of uh, you know how, how much wheat is being produced in Ukraine and Russia today, and where is it going? Um, we all know this now, right? Because the markets have been so disrupted because of the war. Um, but more than analysis, um, econ and commercial officers also advocate for American businesses overseas. So if you're looking to set up a business um, in, um, in Ukraine, France. Um, wherever it might be, usually, if you're a legitimate business, that is, usually your first stop is going to be the American uh, Embassy. It might be the American Chamber of Commerce in in that particular capital, but you will usually pretty quickly come to the American Embassy for advice. You know, what's the real lowdown on what's going on in this country? Will my investments be safe? Is there a rule of law here? I mean, if I run into a problem, and, you know, all businesses run into problems all over the world, including the U.S., and I can I count on the courts to give me a fair shake? Um, so we provide all sorts of um, you know, advice in, in in that respect, but we also advocate for American companies when there are big government contracts or just big contracts are coming up uh, in that particular um, in that particular country. Same thing on the political front, where. Um, you know, this might surprise some of the people in this audience to know. Just because you read it on the internet doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> so, um, so uh, the, you know, what diplomats do, we, we have contacts um, throughout um, throughout the country uh, that we're assigned to, uh, with the op- you know not just with the government but with the opposition as well. Because we never know when there's going to be a change of government. You know, in a predictable cycle, or maybe not so predictable. So we want to have our feelings out all the time and hear what people are saying, and have those private conversations about what's really going on. And we um, report that back to, to Washington, a huge agency, and um, then analysts like David um, <laughs> you know, tell us what it, what it all means. And um, so that's a pretty critical uh, and important function. But there again, we also advocate for U.S. interests. Um, so it might be that we want a particular UN vote to go down a certain way. It might be that we are looking for, um, imagine this, uh, countries to provide tanks to um, another country. Um, and so we, we put our diplomats out there um, advocating uh, on this. It's pretty much a full court press. And what we see in the news is um, you know, what, what the, big, um, uh, the, the big people do, like the president, Secretary of State, and so forth. But there is there is a whole infrastructure that is supporting that in doing, you know, the, the you know, as you said the grunt work of, of um, advocating for whatever it is that we, uh, we we need in that particular country. And then there's also um, just the support functions, um, so the administrative um, management functions of keeping a large um, American platform going overseas. So when I was assigned. To my first post, which was Mogadishu, Somalia, in 19, uh, 1986, and you know that was far, far away from the United States at that time, and it was it was it was a pretty uh, challenging place to get anything done. And you have a clientele, you know, our American diplomats who are expecting to live the way they live in Washington D.C. or in Dallas, Texas. And so, how do you keep how do you keep that going when you Three hours of electricity a week, and you don't even know when that those three hours are going to come. So people are jumping up in the middle of the night to you know uh, run to the, the washing machine to, to to put in that that load of clothes, hoping they're going to finish the cycle uh, before the electricity goes out. Uh, one of my jobs was to keep the generators going and to. Um, Order and make sure that the diesel for those generators uh, was able to get into um, Somalia, and um, you know there were a number of different ways it could come. So you would think that that would be a pretty easy proposition. You just put in the order, and boom, there there it arrives a couple months later. No, it wasn't like that. Um, there was a war in the north. Um, there, uh, the, the border uh, with Kenya was uh, often had complications, including the rainy season, and at the border at, at the sea um, there was a, a, a blockade for much of the time that I was there. So how do you get reliable supplies in to keep our mission going? Um, so it was it was very um, very challenging and not um, you know I think often when people think about um, about uh, diplomats um, they think of it as very glamorous work and it really isn't <laughs> it really isn't it's pretty you know on the down low shall we say I remember
1: I had a I, I wrote a scene in a book where someone was in a tuxedo in the embassy, and I had someone read it who worked at my former agency. and said, "I, I think I bore a tuxedo once in my agency. career. <laughs> I think you might have been maybe uh, a little bit more impressive in the State Department, but not, but not much." You're right. It's, there's a lot of just making things happen. Yeah. Um, I, you know, going back a little bit, a lot of this book charts your life in the State Department, but it's. I think, really wonderfully and in a really moving way interspersed with your family background, where you came from, and, and your life with your family, mm-hmm. um, particularly your mother throughout throughout the book. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering right. if you could share with us a little bit more about your family background and how that has
2: shaped your life and yeah. career. Well, I, you know, I think for all of us, family um, is um, tremendously influential for uh, the good In my case, I was lucky enough that it was for the good. So my parents, um, uh, you know, uh, were, uh, were raised in, uh, in Europe um, during and after uh, World War II. And that was obviously a searing experience for them. Um, my mother grew up in Germany, and Nazi in Germany, um, as a half-Russian person, a stateless person in, in, in Germany. And so that was kind of a very precarious life for them. Um, my father uh, grew up in what was then Yugoslavia, was a prisoner, became a prisoner of war uh, after the Nazis And conquered by Yugoslavia in 11 days. And so um, they knew what it was to live uh, under autocracy. They knew what it was to be afraid. And um, they made their way um, to the United States in many different stages. Uh, after World War II. And, you know, in many ways, their story is very typical of immigrants of that era after World War II coming to the United States. And I'm sure there are some people who are um, either in, in that profile or the children of you know, people who, um, who, who came to the United States at that time. But every story is unique, and dramatic, and sometimes tragic, um, and sometimes very inspiring. And my parents' story, I think, was very inspiring because they came to the United States, and they felt so fortunate that they were here, that they were able to worship as they wanted to, that they were able to say what they wanted to, that they could um, raise my brother and myself um, in, in the way they wanted to, and, um, and you know, give us a good education and a good start in life. And they, um, you know, in, in their um, you know kind of love for America as. I think you know we all love the United States, but I think that immigrants love uh, you know, for, uh, for a country that they choose is something very special. And that was certainly true for my parents. And um, they told my brother and I that we needed to give back. Because even though we had nothing materially, we were so fortunate because we lived in the United States. And we somehow had to find a way to serve. Um, and you can do that in many different ways. You can mentor children. You can um, um, you can um, you know be on the park and recreation board and um, you know beautify your city. Um, you can join the state department. And so after many different detours, I um, I decided that what I wanted to do was join the state department because it married up my love for you know history and politics and policy um, along with travel and you know trying out different foods, different cultures. Um, And the amazing thing is you got paid for that. So there there was definitely a positive there. But it also um, answered that need um, of how how do I get back to the United States. So that's really um, how I came to the State Department. It was really very much my parents' influence and um, really their love for this country.
1: Going back to the State Department, I think one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that the department that you joined in the 80s was not a particularly friendly place for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and the anecdote, which I had never heard before, which I think is remarkable, that even to this day, I think, or until relatively recently, many of the women's restrooms at Foggy Bottom also have journals in
2: them. Um, I, I'm just going to interrupt. That yeah. is still true. And you know, I mean, how, how, how do you say we do not welcome you?
1: For you. it it, would be relatively easy to fix, I imagine, too. Exactly. uh, And you also spent some time discussing the case of Alison Palmer, who had been an FSO in the 50s and 60s, and and who had brought a a, a class action case, I guess, or discrimination Mm -hmm. case against the Department for uh, her mistreatment. Um, and that that really brought some changes to the State Department in your early years. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with this issue at State and kind of how you've seen maybe the role of women in the department change or not since the time that you joined?
2: Yeah, um, so at the risk of perhaps offending some of the people in the room, um, the State Department at that time was known, to a certain extent, is still known um, as Hale, Male, and Yale. Uh-huh. And- Sorts of people mostly got in, um, and the State Department was um, undergoing some some forms, but, but 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 not a lot. Um, and I would say that that the State Department really reflected American society at the time. It wasn't like the State Department it was some outlier in in terms of how the State Department was handling women and welcoming or not women into in, in ranks. Um, and I, I just remember. You know the way women dressed at that time. We wore these boxy little suits, um, and <laughs> I can see some people nodding their heads. And um, these like little fake ties that kind of kind of didn't at all look like a male tie. Um, but you know we tried to look like little men because when you look at the role models, they were only men. And so you 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 know you kind of model yourself uh, after the, the male bosses. And um, you know that was kind of a tough road I hope, because. It, was kind of family. Um, but I um, I joined the State Department, and I joined the State Department in what was called the administrative management company, which was basically, you know, dealing with the generators and, and making sure um, that the platform worked so that um, we could do the important work of, you know, the econ reporting, the, the political reporting, um, that you know, the agency was able to do its work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and um, that is important work. And the whole the whole enterprise would fall apart without uh, without the management officers. But that's not what I wanted to do. I had done that sort of um, when I had uh, worked in uh, New York, which is where I was coming from. And I wanted to do political work. Right? I wanted to represent the United States, you know, kind of, uh, negotiations and various other things. Um, but that was not the I was assigned to so you know never say never you know I, I said about trying to get the experience to um, to become a political officer and I actually got pretty far down that track um, and, and I had a lot of people uh, again you know I mean I sort of dissed the, the, the men but you know I had a lot of male bosses who were helping me out and trying to give me the experience that I needed in order to change my specialty so that I could do um, do the political reporting but it just it just wasn't working. And then um, I got a um, call uh, about the Alison Palmer lawsuit. And so I didn't know much about this, except sort of the scuttlebutt in the hallways. And people at the State Department, i.e. the men who were running the State Department, really didn't like the Palmer case, because it was a class discrimination suit. She first uh, filed a a lawsuit uh, for herself, and she won. And then she filed a class discrimination um, lawsuit. And it went on for something like 30 years. The State Department fought it at every turn and lost <laughs> at every turn. Um, and um, you know, the bosses in the State Department, who were mostly men, hated it because they felt that this was women trying to get in who, um, into the State Department, trying to you know, change their specialties in the State Department, um, who did not deserve it, who, were, who hadn't been able to pass the tests, who hadn't, uh, didn't have the right experience. And they were doing this at the expense of their um, male colleagues. And so there was a real undercurrent in the State Department that this was a terrible way to go. But you know, then the courts ruled, and they forced the State Department. So first the ruling was that the State Department discriminated in intake in the exam. They discriminated in terms of how they assigned people to what they were going to be doing in the State Department. They discriminated against women in, in, um, then in terms of um, which jobs they would get. And they discriminated against them in terms of promotion. So it was this clean sweep. The State Department was discriminating against women. And the State Department was forced to come up with um, certain remedies. And one of them was that um, 14 men could um, do an excursion tour uh, as political officers. And then if they're worked out, uh, they could change their specialty. And I was notified that um, I seemed to fit the profile. And did I want to compete to be one of those 14 men? And so I thought really hard about that because I thought, you know, I don't want to be that person who's taking a job away from you know one of my male colleagues. I don't, I don't want to be that person who doesn't really deserve it. And then I thought, well, except, <laughs> except I do deserve it. <laughs> I am as good as my male colleagues, and I'm going to show them. Um, and so I competed to be one of the 14. I was, um, I was selected, and I went to Moscow which was uh, you know, just a, a, great, uh, a great experience in many, for many different um, reasons. But what I decided was I wasn't going to tell anybody at the State Department, uh, nobody. I didn't tell anybody at the State Department that I was a beneficiary of this. Because I thought, I didn't want that spittlebutt butt of arriving at a post and you know, everybody's like, oh, she's not a real political officer because she got it because she was the beneficiary of the class action lawsuit. You know, fast forward, you know, 30 or 20 years, um, I'm a three-time ambassador. I still haven't told anybody in the Department because, you know, that, that, that little voice in your head is still there. You know, are you good enough? Do you really deserve this? And when I wrote the book, I thought, you know, I need to be honest about this. I need to tell people that... Um, Sometimes you know you work hard. You have people trying to help you out. You, you try to really um, um, you know um, show that you are deserving of a chance. And sometimes that isn't good enough. And then it really is okay to seek um, legal remedies um, because the courts can help our institutions live up to our ideals of equality and so many others. I wanted to talk a bit about a country that I know has meant a lot to you yeah. in the course of your career, um, kind of shifted to, to
1: Ukraine. So you served in Ukraine as the deputy chief of mission, yeah. and then again as the ambassador from yeah. 2016 to 2019. Um, can you maybe bring that country to life a little bit for us? Like, What does it and what has it meant to you, both personally and professionally, over yeah. the course of your life and career?
2: So I've lived a total of six years in. Um so hugely important to have a lot of friends and, obviously, colleagues in, in, in Ukraine. And um, the reason uh, I loved Ukraine you know, when I was there, uh, the first time, which was uh, 10 years after Ukrainian independence, 10 years after the former um, Soviet Union fell Fall Park, and Ukraine had become uh, an independent country. And it was just starting uh, to flower. That was 2001 to 2004. And, um, you know, people were, um, you know, we, we talk, you know, in, in uh, foreign policy circles and uh, political science classes, we talk about civil society and that's not a term that is really very well known in the United States because we take it so for granted that if we see a problem in the United States, like there's a, um, a traffic light that isn't, isn't, isn't working someplace, um, you know, we, we call the police or we call the mayor's office or whoever you're supposed to call. We, we don't want a just let it go and assume that somebody else is going to do it. Um, or if you think that near your, your child's school, there needs to be a traffic light or a stop sign or something like that, you talk to some of the other parents and you go to the mayor's office and you get them to do it. I mean, um, you know, clubs for kids, a chess club or something like that. These are all examples of people um, informally coming together and um, making their civic life better. And we do that automatically in the United States and don't even think about it. In countries uh, of the former Soviet Union, that, is, um, that was unknown because the Communist Party controlled everything, even the chess club. I mean, you, couldn't, you and I couldn't just form a chess club. We would have to go to the local party headquarters, you know, get the tour and you know, do whatever formal things, and then we could have a chess club. Because God knows what we would do, you know, just off <laughs> all the nerdy <dirty> kids <laughs> off by themselves without Tommy's <laughs> party supervision. And so this this, um, this extended to absolutely every facet in life. And so people in the former Soviet Union, um, I mean, it was dangerous to, you know, decide that there should be a playground in your little um, Neighborhood and you know, kind of put a swing set out there. You know, make it yourself and put the swing set out there for the kids. Because any initiative was stamped out um, because that's not what the Communist Party wanted in its people. And um, so, when well, all of a sudden these countries became independent and all of a sudden they said that they wanted most of them all um, said they wanted to be democracies. They wanted to have uh, market economies. They didn't really know how to get there, and that's another story. Maybe we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. Um, but civil society started, um, started playing a role. And 10 years in, you could see that happening. Investigative journalists that were starting to ask about you know, some of the corruption issues that were prevalent in, in Ukraine um, and various other things as well. And so that was very inspiring to me because um, uh, you know, these were people who, who didn't really have um, the experience, or really a model from within their own country, but nevertheless they were taking the reins in their own hands, and they wanted to lead their country to a better future, um, a more representative representative future. And they may not have called it democracy because that's not the way you know most people talk. <laughs> you know, but what people say is, you know, I, I want to be able to have you know a mayor who um, who does a good job for me, and if we don't like him, I want to be able to get rid of him. Um, But people don't use, again, the the political science terms as much. But that's what they really do want. And they wanted that in Ukraine. And it was just a privilege and an honor to to see it. And then to come back in 2016, after two peaceful revolutions where that same civil society had, um, had held the leaders of Ukraine accountable for malfeasance, for fiddling elections, and for corruption. And twice said you know this is not going to stand and we need to change we want to live according to the rule of law where it doesn't matter if you're the president or you know just a regular Joe um, we need to all you know uh, be held accountable to the same law and it was uh, you know, really kind of um, kind of inspiring to, to see that on a whole different level when I went back 12 years later and now with the war in Ukraine, um, I think all of us here in this room are seeing the resilience of uh, the Ukrainian people, and I'll just give you one little um, one little example. One of the things I love about um, Ukrainians is their sense of So, um, so uh, you know, we've all been watching in horror uh, as Putin has unleashed these missile and drone attacks since October of, uh, of last year, and, and the destruction of the um, civilian infrastructure and, and the deaths of civilians. Um, it's, it's, it's just brutal, but the Ukrainian people. I mean, we all know that that's just made them more firm in their determination to win this war. Um, they were not going to give in to uh, to uh, to Putin and the Russians. But uh, the the you know there was just this 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 launched you know a thousand jokes, and the one I love the best was um, Putin, who as we all know, um, you know is, is basically launching a genocidal war against all the Ukrainians. You either. You know, become russified or you die in his book. Um, so the Ukrainians um, said at, at the launch of this uh, the rocket uh, attacks against against them, so Putin is personally responsible, because of course all the legs went out, right? Putin is personally responsible for a baby boom in Ukraine. <laughs> More <laughs> Ukrainian citizens were born <laughs> um, as a result of Putin's actions than any other. <laughs> and that's just, you know, a, kind of um, the resilience that I
1: think for agree people have, have demonstrated. Yeah, and I, you, I think you, you mentioned this in the book that when you were the um, DCM uh, in early 2000s, that there was sort of a, there was much less awareness speaking things like the National Anthem. And yeah. then when you went back, there was a much more kind of cohesive sense that there was a, a nation that was kind of being built out of this, yeah. um, which I think is really—that's really cool to kind of chart that on both ends. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get—I want to come back to the war, mm-hmm. but first I want to go a little bit east to Russia, where you were a political officer, I believe, during the constitutional crisis in 1993, mm-hmm. and had direct experience there during the kind of tumultuous wild '90s um, in Russia. So, can you help us understand the trajectory? of Russia from, you know, sort of collapse of the Soviet Empire up to Putin today? Like, what what is that like, and how has that uh, played into your your life and your professional experience?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, back in 1991, the Russians also, um, uh, you know, were all of a sudden faced with needing to to form a new kind of government and a new economy. Yeltsin, uh, the president of Russia, wanted this um, country to be a democracy. They wanted it to be a market economy. Um, there was a, um, a government that was made up of young reformers who actually knew what they were doing and knew what it meant. Um, I'm not sure Yeltsin exactly knew and uh, <laughs> others of his um But, um, and, you know, they came to us, um, and they came to the French and the British and, um, you know, the international banks and said, will you help us, um, you know, create this, New Russia, um, and um, you know we could have said hands off, no, um, because this was you know everybody knew it was going to be a huge challenge. No country um, had ever experienced this sort of transformation, um, and we uh, didn't really have the experience. Although we had assistance experience, um, this was you know new for us as well. Um, but we wanted Russia to succeed. Because we thought that it was in um, our interest, certainly in Russia's interest to succeed, but it was also in our interest to have um, a big global partner uh, that would work, that would be successful, that would be secure, um, that would be prosperous, um, that would work with us uh, on, the, um, you know, on the global agenda on the problems that were out there. And so we, uh, we did try to help, um, help the Russians. So I, I, Came in 1993, so three years after um, after uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and Russia was a mess. I mean, it was um, the ruble had fallen to nothing. I mean, people would complain, and, and really tragically so, um, that you know, it was um, you know, that their fate was to be um, you know young under communism when you had no opportunities, and old uh, under capitalism when there was nobody taking care of it. And you know the subway, the, the, the streets to the subways would be lined with people selling you know like a cracked, uh, a cracked set of plates or you war know, um, medals, uh, a bouquet of flowers picked from the garden. It was really tragic. I mean the, the economic explosion was very very difficult for ordinary uh, Russians, and so not surprisingly, uh, they, um, you know they, um, Yeltsin and the young government was uh, was not very popular. And um, meanwhile, the communists and the radical nationalists, um, they didn't go away. They were still there, and they were in the parliament. And so uh, uh, the the seeds for a real confrontation between the parliament and um, Yeltsin were established fairly early on. And um, in um, the summer of uh, 1993, uh, Yeltsin fired his uh, vice president Um, who was a, uh, you know, uh, in cahoots with uh, the (coughs) communists and the radicals. That was probably illegal, Um, and so, you know, he was called out on that. Um, And so the parliament then said that they were going to impeach him. Things got more and more tense. And meanwhile, the U.S. embassy was kind of right in the middle of it because the parliament, known as the White House, uh, because it was white, (laughs) um, was on the banks of the river, but right behind it was the U.S. embassy complex. And um, and then just you know off to the side, um, you know, less than a kilometer away was um, was the ambassador's residence, also house. And um, you know every day um, there would be demonstrations in front of parliament, um, and they were getting rowdier and rowdier. And so the um, security forces put a perimeter around this area, and the embassy was in that perimeter. You know, and so first there'd be you know, these young cops that you know didn't look very serious. And you'd have to walk past them to get to work. Um, a couple days later, I mean, you know, there were special forces there um, that I had to pass through to get into my place of work. And you know, somehow it was like boiling the frog. You know, every day the tension ratchets up a little bit more, but you don't necessarily notice it. And I was so green; I didn't have the experience to really understand how dangerous it was. Um, and you know, every day I was still going into the parliament. You know, through the demonstrators, through the security forces, into the parliament, and um, reporting on you know what uh, the radicals in the communists society were doing. And so, on October third, nineteen ninety-three, Yeltsin had had uh, well, the the um, the um, uh, the uh, parliamentarians. Um, started um, to attack. They attacked the mayor's office in, in, uh, in Moscow, which was also in that area. But they also uh, attacked the radio and television towers, the, the Stokhani towers, um, which at that time was a very critical form of, of communication. And um, so Yeltsin had had enough. And then you know, the cordon tightened. And um, overnight, he um, positioned tanks on the bridge. And he actually fired at his own department. So that was, you know, a, a moment uh, in a new democracy, and so the question was, what, what was the United States going to do? What was the international community going to do? And um, you know, I, I think what we decided to do was um, to side with Yeltsin. Uh, you know, we didn't take um, active measures, as they say, but um, we, um, I think, we looked at the political landscape and decided that. Um, You know, if the communists came back into power, if the nationalists came back into power, um, this would not be good for Russia and it would certainly not be good for the United States. There would not be, um, you know, there there would probably be show trials uh, in Russia, but there would also be a question as to whether um, all of the um, cooperation that we were. having with Russia on issues, important issues, like nuclear programs and making sure that CW and BW um, laboratories were secured. This was an important work. And um, if the communists came back into power, uh, it was unclear whether it would be continued. So um, the US chose to look at the glass half, the half full. Um, Yeltsin said that he was going to hold elections in December, which he did. Um, and um, so we, we went with that, um, but I think in the minds of many Russians, um, and you know perhaps a, a young <laughs> um, a young Putin, uh, they looked at that and that didn't you know didn't seem quite right. And they looked at what the U.S. and other countries from the West were doing in terms of the programs where we were helping with uh, forming the economy, which was so painful for the Russian people. Um, and these programs were not right, we lived better in the past. And um, you know, over the 90s, uh, we kept on reaching out our hands to the Russians and to um, Yeltsin, who stayed in, in office until 2000, um, in terms of um, making the G7, the G8, um, although Russia was certainly not the eighth largest economy in the world, because we wanted Russia, that huge country geographically, that huge um, population, and oh, by the way, you know that, that huge nuclear arsenal. We wanted Russia to have a seat at the table and be part of responsible members, uh, a responsible member of the international community. Um, you know, we we set up special arrangements uh, with with NATO so that there would be consultations between NATO and Russia. Uh, I mean, the list goes on for how we um, try to incorporate uh, Russia into the international community. Putin, um, uh, I'm sorry, um, Yeltsin. Um, Resigned unexpectedly uh, uh, on New Year's Eve 2000, and introduced his young prime minister, who barely anybody knew, uh, a guy named uh, Vladimir Putin, um, to the country. And uh, Vladimir Putin started, um, you know, his campaign that night to become president. And several months later, um, became uh, became the next president of Russia. And initially, it seemed that things were going pretty well, um, but. I think he reverted to his KGB roots pretty quickly. Um, because the first thing he did was start to consolidate power. He went after the oligarchs, he went after the newspaper, the, the, the press, he went after civil society, he went after opposition politicians. And um, he consolidated his power. Um, he conducted a brutal war in Chechnya, which should have been our first, um, the first warning of uh, things not, 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 not going well. Um, and then, time, I mean, he just continued to consolidate his power. And he, he sent us, you know, like little warnings that we, um, uh, you know, we did not pay sufficient heed to. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he um, in, in 2000, well, in 2005, he talked about how the, the worst, um, uh, you know, the worst uh, tragedy of the last century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. In 2007, um, at the Munich conference, which is actually being held again uh, today, uh, over this weekend in in, in Munich, um, he he attacked um, uh, the United States and and NATO in pretty brutal terms. And we didn't really pay attention to that, I think for two reasons. First of all, we didn't want to believe what he was saying, that that he was really serious in terms of what he was saying, and that he would take action on it. And I think the other reason was that we were very distracted with the Cold War on terrorism. You know, all of the um, uh, all of the assets, whether they were, um, you know, satellites, whether they were uh, you know, personnel. Um, after the Cold War was over, um, when we got the peace dividend, um, you know, first we thought we could, we we didn't have to invest in those things, and then after 9/11, we started um, uh, redistributing and. Said that to um, those assets to global war on terrorism. We were very distracted, and we just weren't paying enough attention, I think, to, to Russia. Um, but Putin meant it. And in 2008, he grabbed two chunks of Georgia. In 2014, he grabbed um, Crimea, and um, you know started the long war in Donbas. And then eight years later, he went for the total um, total invasion um, of Ukraine that we are witnessing right now. And so you know. It's, it's a long, um, that was a really long answer to your question, but it's really complicated. And I think one of the things that we need to understand as Americans is that we are hugely influential in the world, no question about it. And we can try as hard as we can to shape and to reach out and to um, help other countries, but at the end of the day, um, each country, no matter how small, I mean, Russia is a huge country, but even if it's curious enough, the, the people of that country, the leaders of that country, they are the ones who are the most important in their own story. They are the ones who have the greatest agency. Russia could have made many different choices all along the way over the years. Russia can still make a different choice. You know, when people talk to me about, well, what about negotiations and the offering for Putin? I'm like, the, the path is clear. We can pull out all those troops. To tomorrow, and um, that would be the greatest offering ever for Putin. Um, so, uh, you know, but Russia right now is making a different choice, as it has over the last several years. Um, and that is something that Ukraine is dealing with now, But uh, we actually need to deal with um, in the first place as well. And I'm just going to add one more, uh, um, you know, really test your patience, and just say one other thing, which is that, um, I think often we look at this war, you know, it's a faraway war in a country that, you know, many, many people couldn't find on a map if, if they had been tested. But now, of course, we can all find it on a map and we know it's important. You know, the spicy little democracy fighting against um, the autocratic rule uh, of, of Putin and Russia, I mean, the total unfairness of it, I think, grabbed our hearts right away. Um, but I think when Zelensky addressed Congress in December, he said it best when he said, this is not a charity what you're doing. This is an investment. It is an investment in your security. It's an investment in global security. And I think that is exactly right. The stakes for what Russia is doing are very, very high. Russia does want to dominate Ukraine. There's no question about it. But Russia, uh, you know, All you need to do is look at what Putin has written over the last several years. Look at what he has said over the last several years. Look at what he has done over the last several years. If he is successful in Ukraine, he will keep on going. He has greater ambitions. And that is tremendously dangerous for each one of us in this room. It will be dangerous to our prosperity. It will be dangerous to our security. And it will be dangerous to our freedoms as well. And um, so when we... You know, help Ukraine. We are really helping ourselves. with no concern
1: I was uh, I was struck. You we were talking about how sometimes Putin just says exactly what he's going to do. Um, and thinking about the letter. Essentially, for killing in Ukraine and Russia, he won, um, and lo and behold, you know, he put he put his money where his mouth was. Uh, he, he told us what yeah. we wanted, um, and
2: we need to believe him.
1: Yeah, and so I, I wanted to ask you about how you think we're doing in our uh, our, our policy on Ukraine, our support for Ukraine. I mean, can, can you give us a sense of how you think the administration is doing? Um, you know, what's the been doing particularly well? Where could it, where could it do better if you were, if you were in charge of it? How would you be running it? By I, <laughs>
2: um, I actually think um, the administration is doing pretty well, um, considering um, you know the huge challenge that uh, exists. Um, I think that um, you know we're coming up on a one-year anniversary, and if I had been talking to all of you today and said that. You know, the US would be providing $40 billion of security items to Ukraine. And oh, by the way, it would include HIMARS and John's and the list goes on and on and on. You all would not believe me. I I wouldn't believe myself. Um, I think that um, when you look at what the administration and our allies and partners have done over the last year, it is incredible. Um, It is not only, we have not only um, provided quantity, we've provided quality um, security. Items and we've done it um, relatively quickly. I mean, it is a logistical mirror what is going on right now. Usually, these sorts of things, just through the budgeting and the you know the the, the procurement process and everything else, that would take two years. We are fast tracking through all that stuff and then actually just getting it to Ukraine and then getting it to the border uh, with the yeah, with whichever countries. And um, getting through a war zone to the front lines where it's needed—it is amazing. That said, it's not enough, and it's not getting there quickly. The next six months are going to be critical, and so you know I'm hoping that I'm hoping that we can all pull—you know—all the countries involved can pull rabbits out of hats because um, the Russian uh, offensive, which has already started, um, is going to be grueling and it is going to be difficult. The Ukrainians need everything um, that we can give them, but they need it in time. You know, getting it there in eight months is, is just doesn't do the job. And so um, I think again, the next six months are, are going to be really, really important in terms of pushing back on the Russians, um, putting points on the board um, for um, uh, to 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 show that the Ukrainians are winning that. Um, you know, that this is not, um, that, that the Russians are losing, um, so that um, we can continue to provide that kind of support
0: to Ukraine.
1: I wanted to ask you one more question before we mm-hmm. switch to some questions from the audience. Uh, so the book, I think, is very appropriately titled Lessons from the Edge. And so to kind of turn that message outward, um, what do you hope are the main lessons that readers will take away from, yeah. from reading your memoir?
2: Well, um, there's lots. <laughs> there's lots. Um, but um, I, I guess one of the things is the importance of diplomacy. Um, diplomacy, uh, you know, despite the, you know, kind of, uh, what it looks like on, on TV or in the movies, isn't very glamorous, as I said before. I mean, uh, George Shultz, who was uh, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, Secretary of State, used to call it tending the garden. And what he meant by that, you know, the garden being our world. Um, What he meant by that was um, that we need to do the day-to-day work on relationship building, just as a gardener has to pull the weeds to get those problems out of the garden before they overtake the garden, Um, provide fertilizer for the roses so that they can blossom and really um, be um, positives in, in our rural community and so forth. And that is, um, you know, as you know, if any of you have gardens, I mean, you have to do it every day, or else you you come back in a month and you're like, oh my god. Um, you need to tend relationships, whether they are with allies, with partners, with adversaries. Um, it's important to know what uh, what people are thinking, what they're doing, whether they're going to be there for you in that moment of crisis. Um, with adversaries, it's important that they know where you stand and that. Even if there's no trust involved, they know you mean it when you say that you're going to do something. And um, so I, um, I think you know when diplomacy is done well, it's not in the headlines. You never know about the crisis averted, um, and, and and we shouldn't have to know about that, right? It should just be you know because of the strength of the relationships, um, we were able to get past this difficult spot and move on and. You know, the American people are still, you know, safe and secure. Um, but, um, so I, I wanted to kind of um, demonstrate that through uh, through my experiences, of how, how we do those sorts of things. Again, the unglamorous work of uh, diplomacy, um, unglamorous but very important. Uh, I guess I'll just mention one other thing that, um, you know, I um, took for granted, uh, but I think, um, you know, especially in, in my later years as a leader uh, of um, you know, large enterprise entities overseas, um, as well as uh, the European Bureau of the State Department, um, the importance of acting with integrity, the importance of you know, leading teams and um, uh, you know, communicating with them and having your um, employees' backs. Uh, I think that's really important. Um, so that they trust you, um, you know, and you trust them. You know, creating those teams and doing it with integrity, I think, is really, really critical um, for a successful enterprise.
1: I'm going to ask you one more questions. I, I know there's some person, you folks in the audience here, and you, know, you describe in the book a lot of really wonderful aspects about the Department of State and then some other challenges and kind of What would you say to someone, to a young person today, who is
2: considering a career? in diplomacy? Join the State Department. (laughs) I mean, I I was in the State Department for 33 years. And um, actually, when I was driving over, um, uh, uh, we we were chatting, and um, the individual asked me, um, did you enjoy your time in the State Department? And I'm not sure enjoy is the right verb. But I loved my time in the State Department. It was challenging. I felt it was important work. I felt that what I did made a difference every day. And um, I thought that it was, um, you know, really necessary work. And so, you know, if you want to make a difference um, and you know see the world and have adventures at the same time, I mean, the State Department is the way to go. Um, I one of um, one of the um, undersecretaries for political affairs um, that I, I worked for back in uh, the early aughts. One of the things he said after he retired um, to a very nice job in the private sector, he, he came back to the department and had lunch with us and said, you know, there's no greater privilege than working in an office than having a American flag. And I think that's true uh, because we, um, you know, even with all of the challenges that, that, uh, that we have, we stand for something here in the United States, we stand for something in the world. And um, you know when you work for the U.S. government abroad, you are part of a, a larger mission, and it's a good.
1: All right, I've got a tough question for you, <laughs> um, and I think it's really relevant given your experience, and frankly, given I think some of the challenges that the way that the Russians have, um, you know, frankly dealt with uh, places like Ukraine and, and Syria and Chechnya. Um, you know, I, I saw this when I was working on Syria, the sort of damage that can be done to even just the idea that there's factual truth yeah. is, is a very um, insidious kind of consequence of, of, frankly, Russian power in the current era. But there's a question here about, you know, as a result of your experiences, could you tell us what sources of news you respect and rely upon for legitimate information about what's going on overseas?
2: That is kind of tough. It's tough. Yeah. Um, So, um, you know, really (laughs) what I do is um, I I don't so much go to particular sites. Um, People push things to me a lot that they think I should read. Um, You know, Ukrainians and Russians and obviously a lot of Americans um, and people from other countries. Uh, but the other thing is I talk to a lot of people. And you know, that's anecdotal, sure. um, but um, you know, somehow it feels more like ground truth to me uh, than some of the things we see from us. yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, what moment in your career did you feel most accomplished or was perhaps the most impactful moment?
2: So somebody was recently telling me the the greatest moment is when you're announced that you're going to be the next ambassador to country X because you have all the glory and none of the problems. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to say that. Um, I, um, I guess probably in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you know Because the second time that I was in Ukraine as ambassador, uh, it was, um, again, it was just inspiring to be there. I mean, there were tons of problems, don't get me wrong. Um, but the uh, reformers in government and outside government, um, the international community—we were all working together for a common goal, and it was the goal of the Ukrainian people. I mean, this was not you know something that was you know hatched um, you know someplace in Washington D.C. Uh, in a basement somewhere. This was something that the Ukrainian people wanted. It was something that was agreed with the Ukrainian government. But you know, reform is hard. It is hard in our own country. It is certainly hard in Ukraine. And so we were working toward that common goal and you know seeing um, the progress that was being made, it was it was really very inspiring. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Can we give them another round of applause? The- want to pick up a copy of your book, which we will be doing right after this, selling the books. Yes. I'll sign it. Thank you for that fabulous conversation. I think you shed a lot of light on, on what you did in your career and what diplomats do. And it's uh, the secret workforce that we don't hear a lot about that undergirds our security, like you said. So thank you. We have a small token of appreciation for both of you. Then we'll take a photo and then we'll go sell your books. Thank you again. Thank you for coming.